Psalm 96. We were talking before the service, and someone said, I had one or two psalms prepared. I have four prepared, and uh, we'll see how far we get. You know, David, he went out against one giant, but he took five smooth stones. And I don't find where he threw them away after he got through. So if we don't get them all, we'll keep the others till next week. We'll use them. But anyway, uh, I'd rather have plenty to be looking for something to say. So you pray for me, and we'll try to teach these psalms. Uh, this Psalm 96 is a call for universal worship. Psalm 96. And notice in verse 1 it says, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. All mankind is invited to sing a new song unto the Lord. A Jew invites the Gentiles to adore and join with them in praise and worship of the God. It says all the nations or all the earth. And you know when a Jew invites a Gentile to sing with him and wants everyone in the earth to sing, that removes all prejudice, doesn't it? And, but sometimes only a few sing it, even though everyone's invited to sing a new song. And by the way, a new song is something that you sing once you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, and things are different, and all things are become new. In fact, in Psalm 40, it says in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Now look, verse 3, And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praises unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. So a new song comes as a result of what? Of a new experience. Of an experience of grace. Of being brought up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay. And then God sets your feet upon the solid rock. And He establishes your goings, your walk. And then gives you a testimony. Many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. And you'll have great influence. So all mankind is invited to sing this new song. There will be a day when it will be true. And verse 2 it says, Sing unto the Lord, bless His name, show forth His salvation from day to day. The salvation of the Lord is a continuous thing. Show forth His salvation from day to day. We're to sing and bless His name and to show His salvation forth by words and by deeds, by songs and by sermons, by everything that we do is show forth His salvation. By the way, His salvation is not only to be shown forth day by day, but His salvation is a continuous progressive thing in our lives. Someone says, well, uh, I've been saved. Well, I have too. We have been saved, and that's past tense. But we're being saved, so it's a day-by-day thing. And we shall be saved, and so it's a future thing. He saved us from the penalty of sin by His sacrificial atoning death on the cross. And that's all settled once and for all. And we're being saved. We're now being saved from the powers of sin, day-by-day. And then we shall be saved from the very presence of sin. And that's why Paul says in one place uh, that the Lord hath saved us and called us with the holy calling. That's past tense, isn't it? It's already done. Hath saved us. Then he says, uh, now is your salvation nearer than when you believed? Well, I thought I was already saved and it's nearer than when I believed. He's talking about the future tense of your salvation is nearer than when you believe. 
And the Bible teaches that we're waiting for the complete redemption of soul, body, and spirit at the coming of Christ. And so it is nearer in the salva- in that sense. And we could talk about salvation in the three tenses for a long time. Right now, the, in the present, he's saving us and delivering us from uh, the problems that we face. And he's saving us day by day from sin, from, from various other things. The, salvation is a deliverance. We were delivered from the penalty of death by his sacrificial death on the cross. We're being delivered day by day from the things that uh, come up against us. So that's salvation in the present. And then we shall be delivered. In 2 Corinthians 1.10, it says, Who hath delivered us from so great death, and doth deliver, doth, present, in whom we trust that he shall yet deliver us. So 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10 gives us the three tenses of salvation. And by the way, Paul said in Philippians 1.6, That he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So that salvation is a continuous thing. He begun, began it, he that hath begun a good work in you, and it was, it was begun when you accepted Christ, that good work in you, and he will perform it, it continues, until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's a continuous salvation that we have. Notice in verse 3, Psalm 96 verse 3, Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. All people, really. His glory must be proclaimed to all, all nations. And by the way, His salvation is His glory. His salvation is to be proclaimed. Remember Jesus told us to preach the gospel to every creature? And He said that to go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And He says, teaching them to observe all things, Whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, or the age. And that's the Great Commission. It's very simple. But three points, isn't it? Simple things. Make disciples or believers by preaching the gospel to them. Once they believe the gospel, he says, baptize those disciples. Once those disciples are baptized, he says, teach those disciples. You know, we've got programs and all various kinds of things in various churches. And they make it complicated and the church is supposed to do this. There it is. Why? You know, why say in a thousand words what you can say in ten? Why don't you narrow it down and say what it means? Right quick like. You know, get to the point. Sometimes I'll read some of the commentaries on a verse of Scripture. And they'll go about two pages to tell you a whole lot of nothing. Finally, they'll give you one point that's worth listening to. I like for a fellow to get to the point. Tell me what he's talking about. And God's Word does that. By the way, God can say more in just a one verse and, and bring it home to us than we can say in, in a whole letter. And I'm glad that it is concise. It's, it's right up to the point. And so, uh, His glory is to be proclaimed among all nations. We have a simple platform for doing it and a simple uh, program to do it. And it's... Uh, to make disciples or believers and baptize them and then to teach them. And everything of the gospel and the church, uh, the church mission, missionary purpose, and the church's uh, purpose in the world is found under these three headings. And part of it's being exercised tonight. You're here being taught. Before you were, before you uh, were saved, 
and then you were baptized. So all three of them have been met in you. If you were saved, you're saved. And then you got in the church and you were baptized. And then what happened? You, you're being taught. So it's being carried out. Most everyone here has been saved. You've accepted the Lord. What have you, if, maybe some, there's some that are going to come for baptism and others that will be baptized this Sunday morning after morning service. Be baptized. And then the business is to be taught. And by the way, if you'll do, follow through with God's plan, your life will be blessed. The Bible says baptism is an answer of a good conscience toward God. The Bible teaches that baptism shows forth Christ's death and burial and resurrection. It says that we are planted or buried in the likeness of His death and raised in the likeness of His resurrection. And if it's a likeness, it's showing forth something, isn't it? If I show you a likeness or a picture of my wife or my children, it's showing forth that that's what they're like. You may not see them in person, but that's what they're like. And baptism is a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and you're showing that forth. And so, uh, it's not a bunch of complicated things like a lot of people try to make it. It means a whole lot. And there's more details than are brought out in just one uh, statement or two. But nevertheless... uh, if we want to narrow it down, this is really what it means personally to us. And following Christ in that way, because He says uh, to do it. He commanded us to do it. He gave us the privilege to do it. He gave us the example to do it. He gave us the instructions of how to do it. And to be baptized and be immersed in the water, because that means, uh, that's exactly what it means. By the way, you know. I think I mentioned to you at one time there was a preacher who went to Roswell from up here, a good friend of a friend of mine, ran, uh, went down to Roswell. And I noticed in the Roswell paper it said, and baptism uh, will be by immersion when he got down there. Well, that's great, but if baptism is not by immersion, baptism is immersion. <laughs> not by immersion. You know, he was taking the stand that that's the way he was going to do it, which is good, and I compliment him for it. But on the other hand, that's just like double talk. Baptism means immersion. That's what the word means. It means to immerse. It means to, to dip or plunge or to bury in the water, to go under the water. And so it will not be by immersion. It is immersion. So uh, uh, sometimes we, of course, in taking our stand, misrepresent or misspeak. Let's go on with this. Uh, it says in verse uh, uh, 3, Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all all people. Think of God's wonders that are to be declared. All of God's wonders. If we were to go into His wonders, it would take the rest of the message tonight, wouldn't it? His wonders of creation, His wonders of uh, the birth of Christ. Well, you could go back and include all the wonders of God working in the Old Testament through Moses and through Noah and through uh, Abraham and through... uh, Abel and through uh, the prophets and through all of them in the Old Testament and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and various others all the minor prophets Amos, Hosea and his wonders his wonders and then the wonder of his prophecy if you go back and study in the prophet Micah where he says in Micah 5 verse 2 and now Bethlehem Ephrathah are not least among the princes of Judah for out of out of thee shall come forth a ruler, a governor that shall be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting 
And it speaks of Christ's birth and being uh, born in Bethlehem and the fact that He was eternally with the Father and that He would come forth. That's a wonder, isn't it? That God would tell through a little prophet like Micah the birth of Christ some years to come, the place where He would be born, and the one that would come forth was eternally with the God. And then when He comes forth, John gets on the record and says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says in John 1, I believe it's 12, uh, 14, rather, and he says, The Word became or was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of His only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. His wonders, time would fail for us to talk about wonders when we think of God. The wonder of His Word, the harmony of His Word. You know, when, when I study the Bible and read the Bible... I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that mere men could not have written this book like it is from their own intelligence and knowledge. It had to be divinely inspired. The Bible says, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And that means that they were born along in spirit to write down the things that we have in God's Word. There's a marvel in this Bible and a wonder in this Bible. The fact that it is what it is. All right, let's go on. Verse uh, 3. Declare His glory among the heathen, His wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He's great. His greatness demands great reverence. Greatly to be praised. (coughs) Someone as great as God should be greatly reverenced and praised. Look at this verse. He is to be feared above all gods. Compare his greatness to other gods. You cannot compare them. You might contrast them. He's great in power and dominion. He's great in every way. You cannot compare him with heathen gods. You can only contrast him and say, He is great and they fall far below in anything that they might try to to even claim as greatness. Their claim of greatness is very small as far as the Lord is concerned. He is great. Look, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, the gods of the idol gods that have no power. For all the gods of the nations, look, verse 5, are idols. See that? They're all idols. And it says, but the Lord made the heavens. This shows His greatness. The Lord made the heavens. This shows greatness of creation. Let's read some more. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Look at that. Honor and majesty and strength and beauty. His attributes of honor and majesty and strength and beauty merits our praise. You find that he's not only the creator of all things, but he has all of these attributes. Can you imagine God with honor? Men have small honor given once in a while or do respect but God is due all honor and think of majesty majestic in every fashion in every way undescribable majesty and think of of strength God is omnipotent he's all powerful we as men sometimes you know I get amused at men that think we're so much no you know we don't have the strength of an ant we don't have the strength of anything down here. And we 
always, you know, men glory in their wisdom, how wise they are, and we send up things up in space, and they go around the earth, you know, and they lock two together, and the Russians and the other one, they they got up there, and they go through a little tunnel, and they converse with one another, and bring food and gifts, and etc. All this stuff, it's great, as far as human wisdom is concerned, but God excels all that kind of greatness. And about the time man thinks he's got it figured out, he figures out he doesn't know anything. If he's smart, he, he comes to the conclusion, I know so little. And then all the strength. You know, we have men of great strength in other ways. But we don't have anything. God is the one that has all power. It's, it speaks of his strength and beauty. Look at this. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. By the way, God's strength and beauty is seen in His sanctuary, in His very presence. He manifests His strength in His sanctuary here on earth many times. Many times we see God's strength and beauty and majesty manifested in our midst in the local church. And we know there are sanctuaries of old, the temple, the tabernacle, where you had the Shekinah glory. And we had the very presence of God and Isaiah saw His glory. John on the Isle of Patmos saw Jesus glorified in all of His majesty. And he speaks of the glory of Christ. You read that in Revelation chapter 1 and find a, a description of Jesus that's beyond compare to anything you find anywhere. And uh, we find that He has these, He does show His presence sometimes in our midst, not visibly where we can see His glory, because no man shall see His glory and live. He had to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock. He says, when my glory passes by, you can, I'll put my hand over the cleft of the rock. He said, I'll take care of that. You'll be hidden in the cleft of the rock. And he says, you can see my backward parts, but no man shall see my face and live. He says, I'll just let you get a glimpse, a veiled glimpse of me. God is all glorious. Man cannot look upon his presence in this veil of, of flesh. And by the way, the cleft in the rock represents Jesus where we're hidden and can only uh, come into God's presence through Christ. And another thing, we sing a song that says, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And then I love that part that says, Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. It's not how much we cry and how much we pray and how much we grieve over our sins. These for sins could not atone, though we should be sorry for our sins, though should, we should repent of our sins. But you can do this from now throughout eternity, and these for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. I'm glad it's that way because we would think that the more a person cried and the more a person repented and the sorrier he was for his sins and the more he just uh, uh, inflicted himself with sorrow and tried to make himself sorrowful, the, the more saved he would be as a result. It's not that way. We all ought to repent of our sins. We all ought to be sorry that Jesus had to die on the cross in order for us to be saved. Jesus had to redeem us by shedding his blood on the cross. And he did that willingly and lovingly. But no amount of, of uh, penance on our part, no amount of, of infliction of our own... Uh, Spirit can bring about any greater salvation than simply confessing that we're sinners in the sight of God and, and being sorry that he, Jesus had to die for our sins and accepting his, Him as Lord and Savior because it's offered in free grace. 
And He's going to give you salvation when you trust Him who died in your place. It doesn't mean you shouldn't grieve over your sinfulness. It doesn't mean you shouldn't repent of your sinfulness. But it means you cannot atone for your sins. So, back to this. Where were we? Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Given to the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, given to the Lord glory and strength. In other words, He is due our worship. Glory and strength belong to Him. He is due our praise. Look at verse 8. Given to the Lord the glory due unto His name. He is due. And bring, it says, bring an offering and come into His courts. By the way, you notice something here? Worship and giving go together. Worship and giving. Someone says, you know, I worship God, but I'm not going to bring anything. Well, do you really worship God? You can tell how much a man loves the Lord if it, if it reaches deep enough to get into his giving of thanks for it. You know? God said, I worship God. We've got them all over town that worship God. Brother Randy <laughs> picked up one today. Said he'd, the Brother Joyce was his pastor, and Brother Randy's been with me eight years, and I think he's been here one time since Randy's been to church. You know. Well, I know the man needs help, and I know we need to pray for him. But the point is, think about it. If you really mean business, you'd attend church more than once in eight years, wouldn't you? I think you would. I really do. And you might bring a dollar or two and put an elephant plate. Just, just to show that, you know, God says, honor me with your substance. First fruits of all your increase. Worship and giving go together. I want you to look in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. There were three special feasts of the year. The Feast of Passover, and the Feast of uh, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 16, it says, three times a year. Look. Deuteronomy 16.16. By the way, you can remember these by 16.16. That ought to be easy. Okay? Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place... Look. They shall appear in the place which he shall choose. There's a designated place for worship. And look. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the Feast of the Weeks... Unleavened bread is the Passover, and Feast of Weeks is the Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles later on. And they shall, look, look at this last statement. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Does that tell you something? They shall not appear before the Lord empty. This other was the worship, and times of worship, and a place of worship that God had designated. And God says, when they come, they'll not appear empty. Because God has given us the privilege of thanking Him for what He's done for us. And I believe the more that you want to serve God, the more you'll be willing to at least give your tithes and offerings. And offerings are thanksgiving offerings. Someone said, well, preacher, I'm too poor to give a tithe. That's why you're too poor. Now listen to me. No one's too poor to give a tithe. No one is too poor to give a tithe. You say, preacher, I can't believe that. If you have a dime, one penny, you'd give God one penny. And I'll guarantee you those nine pennies, of course they won't buy anything nowadays. The little boy went in the store, but they'll, they'll uh, buy you more than that dime. But anyway, the little boy went in the store, I'll get sidetracked again. And he had a nickel, and he told the merchant, he says, I want to buy this candy. And the merchant, he said, well, no, he says, that's 20 cents. I want to buy this one. He said, that's a quarter. And he picked out another one. He said, well, that's 
18 cents. That's 15 cents. Right? The little old boy just left his nickel laying there on the counter and turned around and walked out. Merchant says, son, come here. You left your nickel here. He says, you can keep it. It won't buy anything anyway. <laughs> That's about the way it is, too, isn't it? But listen, when you give your tithe, God will make that 90% go further than the 100. I'll guarantee you, it'll do you better. Because it'll teach you how to use the rest of it. You know, there's discipline in tithing. It, it teaches you how to manage the rest of your money. People say, well, you know, I just can't do that. You'll figure it out one of these days. And when you do, it'll be a blessing to you. Because God will bless you for it. In fact, uh, if we'll bring our tithes and offerings, God will bless that. But let's go on with this. It says in verse uh, 8, Give unto the Lord, uh, glory due unto His name. And notice, I want you to notice one word here in this 8th verse. Bring an offering and come into His courts. doesn't say send it, does it? Though if you were unable, due to sickness or something else, it might be advisable to still let God know that you wanted to support the work. But on the other hand, He wants your presence. He says, bring. And we're to bring our offerings to God. And then it says in verse 9, O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Worship should be pure and sincere. In the beauty of holiness... Moral and spiritual beauty. You see, God wants us to worship Him, but He wants us to do it in the right way. In the beauty of holiness, and fear means to reverence before Him, He says, all the earth. Pure and sincere worship. Jesus said, uh, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper must worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You see, God wants us to come into His presence, and though we're unholy and sinful, He wants us to repent and become what He'd like for us to become. If we're going to live an ungodly life, we're in no condition of heart and soul to truly worship God until we repent of our sins. And when we repent of our sins, then we're in a condition to truly worship God. That's what God demands of us, to come into His presence. He said, tells us, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. You know, a lot of Baptists are afraid of that word holiness. It doesn't hurt to use it. God expects it. We're to be a holy people. And we're to, to clean up our lives. And how are we to do it? The Bible says, Having therefore, dearly beloved, these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness, listen, of the flesh and of the Spirit. And by the way, that's our spirit. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't need any cleansing. Of the flesh and of the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I believe that's 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. So, we need to clean up our own lives. Well, it says, oh, you know, only God can clean up my life. Yes, He can cleanse you from all your sins, but He expects you to clean it up too. You see, you've got something to do. You know, I'm always amazed that these folks go around and say, well, you know, God's going to take care of me. I don't have to do a thing. I could want that drink of water over there and say, God, I'm just dying of thirst. I'd sure like to have a little water because my throat's getting dry. But if I don't step over there and get it, it still sit there. God expects us to do something for ourselves. And you know, a lot of people are just sitting around waiting for somebody to do something for them. You know, I need some help, but who's going to do it? Well, you're supposed to do it. You ever thought of that? You're supposed to do it. See, God gave you two hands and two feet and a head up here on your shoulders and 
a little brain. Sometimes ours is like a bird brain, but we ought to use what we have, right? If it's only little, just use that much. We're expected to use what God has given us. And if we don't do it, it's our own fault. And so, it tells us here, <clears throat> look at this verse. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. We're to give this message among the heathen. The Lord reigneth. God does reign. It says, The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. We find when the Lord reigns, He reigns completely and totally. And one day He will reign over the hearts of men. His sovereignty and judicial power should be proclaimed to all nations. Notice, Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. God is sovereign in His actions. God is sovereign. The Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He has control of this world. You say, well, the devil's got it. No, really, God, the devil only has as much as God will permit him to have and only as long and to the degree that God will permit him to have. But it belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and they that dwell therein. See, it all belongs to God. And, and when men think that they're reigning or ruling in this world, they're only doing it by permission, a permissive will. You say, well, why does God permit the wicked ones to be on the throne? The Bible says God uh, setteth up kings and removeth kings. He can permit them to be in power a while, and then He can bring them off and out of power. And He does it through, the na- through years, through the years that go. He's established the world that it uh, shall not be moved. Notice, He shall judge the people righteously. His sovereignty and judicial power need to be proclaimed to all nations. By the way, God is sovereign, and He is the Savior, and He is also the judge. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this. You know, I am really sincere about this thought of life after death, that we're not only going to have to live now, but we're going to have to meet the Lord later on. That when we die, it's not all over. After this, after this, we ought to, you know, you ought to memorize those two words or let them sink in your mind. After this, the what? The judgment. After this, the judgment. You say, well, what about the Christian judgment? There is a Christian judgment. We'll answer to God for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. But there is also a judgment for the wicked dead, and they shall stand before that great white throne. In Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 11, and we'll find that at that judgment on down to the rest of the chapter, they're going to be judged according to their works. So everyone's going to have to meet God in judgment. So after this, the judgment. We need to be concerned about it. Uh, his sovereignty and judicial power should be proclaimed to all nations. And then I want you to notice verse uh, 11. It says, Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. He calls heaven and earth to rejoice. Heaven and earth should rejoice because the Lord will take complete charge. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful in all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. By the way, I've often wondered why there's a division in the verse in the midst of the complete statement there. 
I find I study it out and I find no uh, reason for it. That is the division that was made. You know, the Bible was divided in the chapters, I believe, in about the year 1300 A.D., about the 13th century, 13th, uh, in 1300. And in about 1500, I think it was divided into the verses. It was divided into chapters and then verses. Otherwise, before that, it was just books written. Remember when it says Jesus was handed the, the scroll and he found the place where it was written. He found the place in Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. By the way, I'm glad he stopped there. He's quoting from Isaiah, and the next statement said, In the day of vengeance of our God. But he wasn't there to preach the day of vengeance yet. But he's there to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, it didn't mean there wouldn't be a day of vengeance. But he's later on there will be a day of vengeance of our God. And so, Jesus quoted from Isaiah, but he found the place where it was written. So the chapter and verse divisions came later on. They didn't come when we first had the New Testament made up, even when the apostles wrote the chapters of the, the books of the New Testament. They were divided much, much later on. 1,300 years later, the chapters. And then a couple of hundred years in verses. And here in the midst of this sentence, look, let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice, no period there, before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. So both heaven and earth can rejoice because the Lord will take charge of things, both angels and men. He's made the angels in heaven to rejoice. He's, he's made men upon this earth to rejoice. And by the way, the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that repenteth, And that there's presence and joy in the presence of the angels of God. And the Bible says in the New Testament that the things that are happening here in the salvation of men, which things the angels desire to look into. Peter says the angels desire... And the word means to bend aside to see what's going on in the church. And that they might be, in Ephesians it says that it might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Can you imagine the preaching of the word and the things that happen here and boys and girls and men and women accepting Jesus as their Lord and Savior and the baptism that goes on and the Lord's Supper and the spiritual blessings that take, that take place in the church, in your hearts and lives, and the angels can look down from heaven and understand that there's happiness and joy brought by the preaching of God's Word through these things, and the angels rejoicing and desiring to, to understand and know that, which things the angels desire to look into, so that you might say the church is teaching the heavens and the angels. You say, well, they're higher created beings. Yes, but they never uh, had... They were not subject to redemption like mankind. There were good angels offered no salvation for the fallen angel, but he has for fallen man. That's where you and I have a blessing. He provides salvation for us in spite of our sins. But they fell in rebellion against God through the leadership of, of Satan, and they fell from heaven, and therefore we have Satan and his angels. 
and we have wicked angels. But the good ones are in heaven, and both heaven and earth can rejoice. Look at this. Let the heavens rejoice, in verse 11, and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. <coughs> Think of all this. That even nature has a way of expressing thanks. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful. How can a field be joyful? God says it can. Everything that He has made in its own way has the ability to praise God. You know when those little flowers grow out there and they bloom and they're so beautiful? You say, well, they are not living beings like human beings or not even animal like uh, the, the animals that walk around on all fours. They're not that. But God is letting them rejoice in what they're doing. They have more life than we may give them credit for. Look, what does he say? Let, let the field be joyful and all that is therein. How can it be joyful if it doesn't have any way to show joy? There's some way that, that all God's creation is able to respond in rejoicing. We'll get, we'll get uh, some more in the next uh, chapter. Look, it says... Uh, let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice. Even the trees are going to rejoice. And it says, before the, uh, Rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the earth, world with righteousness and the people with his truth. And the hope of the world is Christ's second coming. 